I'm Dr. Sarah Betty. This is the Hidden Body Podcast. Today I speak with the Dalai Lama's personal physician, Dr. Barry Curzon. He's a Western trained medical doctor and has incredible insight on the power of both Western and Eastern medicine and when to use each one. He's taught me the difference between empathy and compassion and that compassion can be taught. I always thought that empathy was the right thing, especially when it comes to working with patients uh, in the emergency room. I'm an ER doctor. But now I realize for a sensitive person like myself, empathy contributes to my burnout, whereas compassion prevents it. I interviewed Dr. Curzon today with my guest from a previous episode, episode three, Dr. Emeryn Mayer. Dr. Mayer is a world-renowned researcher, gastroenterology medical doctor, as well as author of The Mind-Gut Connection and Gut Immune Connection. And we interviewed Dr. Curzon together because we both feel that Dr. Curzon's message of interconnectedness is so important. And what do we mean by interconnectedness? When we start to realize how interconnected we truly are, in both our physical bodies, how our bodies are interconnected so integrally to our minds, how we're all connected to each other, how the health of our environment, including how we grow our food, is so intertwined with our personal health. And I think even more so now we see this with COVID. When we start to understand this level of interconnectedness, we may start to look at how to achieve optimal health in a slightly different way. Welcome, Dr. Curzon. Thank you, Dr. Emran, for being here as well. Dr. Curzon, Barry, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, how you became the Dalai Lama's personal physician? You know, it's really, there's no, you don't go for an interview, you don't fill out an application. It's nothing like that, you know. Um, but uh, through the years, you know, starting in the late 80s, um, He's always told me to keep my medicine current. And, you know, I, I mean, I listen to him. So I've done that. I still have my license to practice in California. And until recently, I had my board certification. You know, every seven years had to redo it by exam in family medicine. And I always kept that current. And in, um, I think it was 1990, he called me in to his residence. And he said, um, he would like to go to Rio de Janeiro. There was a very important international um, uh, climate change conference or environmental conference that was happening at that time, and he wanted to go. But his office had gotten word that um, there was a cholera outbreak in Rio. Uh, so he basically asked me, you know, can I go? So, you know, I was pretty nervous. I didn't know quite what to say. But I said, Your Holiness, I think you can go. Um, you know, there are safety, you know, measures, precautions uh, to prevent you from getting cholera. Um, you'll be in a good hotel, clean food, clean water, like that. And also, there's a vaccine. It's not 100% effective, but it'll give you some reasonable protection. And so he thanked me and I left. Uh, and then I heard through the grapevine, you know, the rumor mill in town in Dharamsala that he had called about a week later, he'd called in his Tibetan medicine doctor, Tenzin Chodak, uh, who had been uh, imprisoned in the gulag 
in Tibet for about 18 or 20 years, escaped, and then was able to make it to India and then became His Holiness's Tibetan medicine doctor. He was a, a star. Um, and I heard through the grapevine that Tenzin Chodak advised him, don't go, it's too, too risky. And so I thought at that time when I heard that, okay, you know, it's up to His Holiness, you know, we just give him the information and then, you know, he makes the decision, of course. And um, then a week or so later, he calls me back in and he, you know, not like this, but essentially he says, you know, give me the vaccine. So um, I went and found the cleanest I could find of the color of vaccine and then went back and I administered it. And I was very nervous because there's kind of an unwritten law or rule kind of that you never draw blood from a Buddha. And as you both know very well, and the doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals in the audience know very well, when you give an intramuscular injection, you put the needle in, in the muscle and before you inject, you withdraw a little bit to see if you're in a vessel, a blood vessel. And you, know, you see if some blood comes back into the hub of the syringe. And so when I did that and there was no blood in the syringe, inside I was going like, whew, you know. <laughs> and uh, then I gave him the injection. You never turn your back on someone like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. It's considered very um, rude. And so I'm backing up after I give him the injection, I'm rubbing it in, make sure it's not bleeding and things okay, he's okay. And then uh, I'm backing up to leave. I didn't wanna take his time. And he reaches out and takes my hand and says, come with me. And um, so I went with him in the next room. And the next room was um, where he was in half day retreat. And in the middle, it was a small room. And in the middle of the room was a table about a meter, meter 25, you know, maybe four feet by four feet square filled with semi-precious stones. And he takes him by the hand and clockwise slowly walks me around this mandala three times, showing me what's on the outside, which are these glass shelves with these Buddha statues, maybe six inches, eight inches, 12 inches. And he's telling me about each of these statues and they go back a thousand plus years. And he pulls out, uh, he, he spends a lot of time looking at this pile of semi-precious stones. He pulls one out and he offers it, offers it to me. And it's a crystal, it's about the size of most of my little finger. And I have that crystal on my altar in my room in Dharamsala. And then he waits, seems like a long time, he's looking at this pile of semi-precious stones, pulls out a, 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 a turquoise and he offers the turquoise to me. And so now I wear it around my neck ever since then. Um, and um, I just took a shower, so it's on the shelf, but I can show it to you. Uh, let me get it, I'll just be right back. Okay, I love him. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you can see it. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. This is the turquoise. There's the front, one side. Yeah. And there's the other side. Oh, that's beautiful. And you wear it all the time? I wear it all the time, except when I'm in the shower or swimming or, you know. Um, and I've been in situations where I really should have died. There were about five or six of these situations. And this has been on my body. And I feel strongly that this has protected me through His Holiness's blessings to survive. Um, so that was the first episode where there was a medical involvement with His Holiness. 
about, uh, let's see, 10, 20, a little over 30 years ago, 31, 32 years ago. Um, and then he was very, very healthy. And then about 15 years ago, he had some gallbladder issues. We knew he had stones, but they weren't really symptomatic. We weren't doing much with him. We we're just watching. And um, he had uh, uh, he had acute cholecystitis, um, and uh, he was he was pretty sick with that. And so uh, we ended up laparoscopically removing his gallbladder. And then ever since then, we've been doing regular visits uh, every year. You know, healthcare sort of history and physical kind of visits at the Mayo Clinic for about almost 15 years, 14 years or something. Um, and then we've curtailed that because the, the travel was a little bit too hard for him to go to America from India. So we've been last few years, just prior to COVID, we've been getting those done in Delhi. And so I've been involved with all of that. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're working as his doctor, so you're his doctor, you know? It's not like there's this card carrying sort of thing where you, uh, yeah. So that's kind of kind of how. But you know, I, I pinch myself all the time. I I don't believe it. I I just think it's a, it's just a marvelous dream. And I don't really care for him. Let me make this clear. He cares for me. You know, I go through the motions of being the doctor and informing him this or that, but he really takes care of me. And there are many many instances over thirty plus years where he's you know done that and continues to do that. Yeah, I want you to tell us those stories later. But do you feel like the medicine you practice on the Dalai Lama, it seems like for you, it's more Western allopathic medicine. But do you, you know, for its healthcare, ever blend like elements with like Eastern Tibetan medicine? And do you ever feel like there's some things that could be better treated by Tibetan medicine, other things better with Western medicine? The short answer to both of your questions, Sarah, is yes and yes. Mm -hmm. um, to explain that a little bit. The second question, we always are using both allopathic and Tibetan medicine for his holiness. That's his choice. Yeah. So we work very closely with the allopathic doctor, with the, sorry, uh, Tibetan medicine doctors. So we use allopathic and Tibetan medicine with him and work very closely with the Tibetan medicine doctors. Um, and yes, um, there are times when Telepathic medicine is a bit too severe, too many complications. Um, maybe it's not right on the mark because it's kind of an average for everybody with that diagnosis and maybe not so appropriate at that time for that particular person, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, Tibetan medicine works not on the level of symptoms so much, but it goes for root, some of the root just did, uh, causes or the root um, you know, imbalances and tries to rectify those. Uh, generally, I mean, primarily they're using the pulse diagnosis. So the, you know, you'd have the, maybe I can do it here easier. You'd have the three, three fingers on the radial artery and then each finger can move, you know, over, you know, so you have six and six, 12 different places that you're investigating. And they each correspond roughly to a major organ in the body. Um, they also will often look at the urine and look at different qualities of the urine. They'll look at bubbles when they stir it up in terms of lung. They'll look at, uh, they'll smell it, we'll taste it, put a little on our tongue um, and you know, determine part of the problem through the urine, most of it through the pulse diagnosis. 
And then a mirror image of what we found was wrong would be prescribed, a mirror image to rectify the imbalances of those three so-called humors, the lung, tip, and begin. Lung is a disorder of more of the nervous system, of movement, of energy, of the nervous system. So on its superficial level, it's more anxiety. On its more severe end, it's schizophrenia and psychosis. Uh, and then TIPA is a hot disorder or jaundice, mostly involved with the liver um, and the upper part of the body. And then Began is cold disease, mostly the kidneys and the lower parts of the body. So balancing all those and figuring out the imbalance through both, as I mentioned, the pulse diagnosis and the urine, and then some other things also looking at the patient, some examination, but primarily the first two, and then prescribing the direct opposite, the mirror image in terms of treatment, which is mostly herbal medicine. There are sometimes acupuncture, there are hot baths, uh, there are a number of other modalities, but primarily the herbal medicines. Um, and so these take often a while to work. Um, they're not so good for acute problems, like an infection, acute infection, or you know, an injury, those kind of things, um, but work better for chronic sort of conditions. Um, so you know, he's taking that every day of his life, as I have been for the last 30, 40 years, pretty much every day of my life, taking Tibet medicine also. Interesting. Maybe if I can ask a, a sort of related question. So in, in, in the West, we're sort of obsessed with the statistics of longevity. So the the more the, the population ages, obviously longevity and healthy longevity is becoming like a, like a key measure. Um, do you think that Tibetan medicine, I mean, I've often thought about this just from the, from the meditation standpoint. So in the West now, you know, mindfulness is, is sort of a, a big strategy for various chronic conditions, um, but it was never really developed for, for for health reasons, it was really for spiritual enhanced the whole meditative practice. And I was just wondering, like of all the aspects from the herbal medicine, from the mindfulness, um, do you think Tibetan medicine has an edge over the allopathic medicine and, and Western medicine in terms of longevity and overall health, or is that just not a goal? It's, it's the, the the goal is not the length of life, it's, it's, it's really, you know, the moment of life. Well, you have to remember, Imran, that longevity from a Buddhist and a Tibetan perspective is infinite, mm -hmm. because it's not just based on this lifetime, mm -hmm. at least infinite until we become fully enlightened Buddha, and then we continue to live. So, you know, so, so it's a different concept in terms of longevity. But if you're talking about longevity of this life in particular, um, there is some early pilot work that needs a lot more uh, research um, that has looked at meditation and um, the uh, telomeres, the you know the tips of the human or, or the hips, tips of the chromosome, um, and if those telomeres uh, maintain their length uh, for years, that seems to uh, be correlated with, whether it's the cause or not, we don't know, but it seems to be correlated with longevity. Let's break down what Dr. Curzon just brought up, telomeres. Telomeres are little protective caps at the end of our DNA, which make up our chromosomes. 
think of them like the plastic tips at the end of a shoelace. They protect the DNA tips from fraying or sticking to each other. Every time our cells replicate, the chromosome that holds the DNA needs to replicate. But for whatever reason, every time our DNA is replicated, the end part of the DNA strand is not replicated. It's just like a photocopier cutting off the last line of text from a page. This is where telomeres come in. Because they attach to the end of DNA, they are basically extra non-coding buffers at the end of DNA, and telomeres can get shorter and shorter without any loss of important genetic information. This shortening of telomeres with every replication is thought to be one of the several factors that could cause cells to age. Dr. Curzon is stating that preliminary research suggests that meditators have longer telomeres at the tips of their DNA. Longer telomeres appear to be linked to healthier DNA and cell function. There have been some studies uh, that have shown, and there's an enzyme called telomerase, which helps clean up the broken fragments of DNA in the telomere and hence keep the telomeres long. And so telomerase is good stuff in terms of longevity. And there's some pilot, some you know, small research, well done, that needs to be replicated, showing that levels of telomerase in groups of people that have been trained in meditation are double the levels of telomerase in the control group that it does not meditate, suggesting that meditation can boost telomerase and hence uh, can be associated at least with longevity. Whether that's true or not, I, you know, we need more research. Um, quality of life, as you've alluded to, is really important in the in the uh, in Buddhism. Uh, quantity is also important because if you've got quality, you want to sustain it as long as you can. So you want quantity. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't have quality and you're harming people, it's almost better, almost better to have a short life and to create in your lifetime less negative karma. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another sort of variability in terms of, of quality. Um, having an edge over allopathic medicine, well, that's a tough one to determine. Um, you know, I, you know I, I think I just, you know, it, it would be hard to say that um, other than the caveat I mentioned in terms of meditation. It would also be hard to actually determine this because I mean, I remember from, um, you know, doing a long trekking in, in Ladakh, from Ladakh down into India, stopping at all these monasteries. The only thing that, that you saw civilization were these monasteries along the way uh, that you reached every evening. And <clears throat> obviously, you know, so the monks that we met on this, on this hike, I mean, they were all happy, smiling, radiating positivity. And then we often thought about is if, if you live in that environment, I mean, it's so fundamentally different from, you know, what people in developed societies are dealing with from the constant bombardment with information, negative information and, you know, pollution and all these negative things. So <clears throat> um, it's, it's obviously, I mean, I personally think it's, it's easier to live that Buddhist lifestyle in an environment that's compatible and conducive to it. Um, and the outcomes are probably better as well, because the challenges on the body and on the mind are not as dramatic as they are now in our modern world.
Do, I mean, do you agree with that or? Yeah, well, I, I think the stress-related diseases, you know, you'll find less of them among people, monastics, for example, or for, you know, people that live a more contemplative <clears throat> lifestyle where they're less, you know, caught up in the daily stresses. Having said that, you know, even those remote monasteries uh, in Nepal, uh, you know, they're now getting, you know, cell towers and they're getting, yeah. monks are having cell phones and they're connected, you know, so things are changing. Um, but I, you know, I mean, having said that, there's a lot to be said for a contemplative lifestyle where one is spending more time in the present moment. Uh, one is spending more time in, you know, trying to cultivate positive emotions and to transform negative emotions into positive emotions um, towards understanding what reality is and is not. Um, you know, more in line with what the quantum physicists are talking about um, in terms of no objective reality that our subjective experience very much influences to a large degree our reality. Um, so similar, you know, that's a similar view to uh, for, for, from Buddhist philosophy and uh, similar to uh, quantum mechanics or quantum physics. Um, and then of course, compassion and unconditioned compassion, universal compassion, uh, the compassion that is based on the understanding that uh, we're all the same, you know, we get caught up in all the superficial differences, you know, gender and race and religion and family, and education and country of origin. And I mean, you name it, right? Um, and we get stuck in that. But those are, I mean, those are present, those are there, but they're not so important. You know, on a deeper level, we're actually all the same. We all want to be happy and none of us want to hurt. And the more we can recognize that, we can actually live a less stressful life, a more happy life and a more loving, compassionate life. Every time we meet someone, if we can remember she or he, just like me, just wants to be happy, doesn't want to hurt, automatically, our relationship with whomever that person is, is going to be better. Even if it's a conflictual relationship, it'll be less conflictual. Um, so living by that simple mantra, you know, that we all want to be happy, none of us want to hurt. And that unites us all because that's true for all of us. Even the animals just want to be happy and don't want to hurt. Um, so living that kind of a lifestyle uh, brings us more into the present, brings more joy, brings more love compassion, the heart feels open and full. Um, and, and I suspect less disease, um, you know, particularly the stress-related uh, diseases. I mean, heart attack, we've, for decades, we've been talking about heart attack, you know, related to the type A personality, the person that's really high strung and very anxious and very angry. And, you know, so th these kind of things are opposite to that. So you would expect much less heart disease. And in fact, I mean, I, just more anecdotally, but looking at the Tibetan community in exile in India, the 100, 150,000 people, we don't see much heart disease. Um, it's very interesting. We do see some stroke, but we don't see uh, much heart disease. Um, and there is high blood pressure too, but not much heart disease. So that's kind of interesting, but I don't know the numbers on that, the metrics, but anecdotally, it seems like there's much less heart disease among the Tibetan, ex Tibetans living in exile in India.
One one last question before you know hand it back over to uh, to, uh, to Sarah. <clears throat> so the Tibetan exile community. I mean, what what the Tibetans have gone through in a dilemma in, in in terms of what normally would create anger and hatred in a lot of other um, groups, ethnic groups or individuals. Um, Obviously, they they must have dealt with, and the Dalai Lama have has dealt with this in in a in a Buddhist way, which is absolutely remarkable to me, with all the things that have been done to them and is being done to them. And um, how how do people do that? Is is the meditative practice, contemplative practice, so powerful that you can even overcome these sort of most what we would consider natural human reactions to such an injustice? The answer is yes, Emran. The answer is yes, definitively yes. Um, I would also, uh, and I'll come back to this, I'm not sure that our natural state is negative anger, you know, hatred, et cetera. Um, I'll come back to that. But let me answer, answer your, your main question. His Holiness the Dalai Lama practices Tonglen, which is taking and giving uh, many times every day. And he practices it so it's, it, what it is, is when we breathe in, we take in the suffering of everyone. And when we breathe out, we fill them with all the good stuff, with happiness, with uh, compassion and wisdom. Uh, the wisdom to know reality correctly and particularly our ego correctly. Um, and His Holiness does that, you know, not only for all living beings, but he also specifically does it for the hardliners and the people, you know, torturing the Tibetan prisoners in the gulags in Tibet, the prison guards. Um, he takes on their suffering and gives them back all the good stuff because he can see by, by the harm that they're doing, it not only harms the Tibetan people who are directly receiving the harm, but the, then the later, you know, the negative karma that they create that brings tremendous suffering for them in the future is almost unimaginable. Um, and he sees that clearly. And therefore he has genuine compassion for these tough guys, the hardliners and the prison guards. Um, and, and, and all of us practice, uh, the Mahayanas, we practice Tonglen. And we try to do that. We, part of that is you do it with your so-called enemies. Mm -hmm. you, know, you try to understand that behind their, their injustice, their hatred, their bullying, you know, their, their, uh, you know, um, they're suffering, you know, and, and they're going to be suffering. And so you, on that basis, you practice this kind of compassion meditation. You do this daily, you know, and that helps break down those artificial constructs of us and them, our friend and enemy, because those are artificial. Not only are they artificial, but they also change. So one day someone might be our arch enemy, you know, someone that publicly, you know, behind our back said some terrible things about us, right, in public. You know, then later we may become very close friends and develop a trusting relationship. That happens. Uh, so that notion of friend and enemy is quite relative and actually quite, um, you know, it's off the mark in terms of reality. It's something that's it's fabricated through our prejudice and our biases and through our language and our constructs of language in terms of subject, object, and and verb, well, that's the way we then see the world because that's how our language is constructed and 
we think in terms of language. Those are all very superficial, artificial. That's not the way reality is on a deeper level. So both from the point of view of compassion and then the point of view, as I'm just mentioning now, from wisdom, the shunyata, the emptiness, we recognize that you know, even enemies, um, you know, there's no such thing as an enemy. And then your point about, you know, you kind of mentioned the natural you know, state or tendency to be angry sometimes or to be, have revenge, someone hurts us. You know, there's been some good research. Um, some of it's coming out of the University of, of Wisconsin, Madison, Richard Davidson et al., where they take infants anywhere from two to, to four to six months, and they put them in front of a little screen, a monitor, and they show on the monitor another infant, same age, you know, maybe four months. And then that infant will be pushing a ball uphill. And then in the monitor, there'll be a third child. And that child in the first scenario will be helping the, the other child push the ball to the screen. And then you look at the quote unquote, the real, you know, infant one, yeah. And that infant is smiling, is moving towards the monitor, you know, looks very happy. Then mm -hmm. scenario number two, the third baby is obstructing, pushing that ball back down the hill. And the, the real baby, so-called real baby, it's looking at this, becomes frightened, steps back, furrowed brow, looks very uncomfortable. So from that kind of research, uh, a lot of the psychology people are, are concluding now that our, 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 you know, um, we come into the world uh, with compassion and through, you know, kind of this negative environment that we all experience a lot, even when we have good families, there's a lot of negativity around that we begin to imbibe this more, these more negative attitudes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What you guys are talking about reminds me a lot about a part of your book, Barry, uh, your book called No Fear, No Death, The Transformative Power of Compassion. There's a part in the book, I'm just going to read it. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been saying this again and again, that the notion of nationhood is old-fashioned. Nationhood was relevant in the 20th century, but nationhood is no longer relevant in the 21st century. We are now so interconnected because of commerce and travel, because of education, because of communication, especially the internet, that national boundaries are losing their significance and reason for being. As we are all members of one human family, national boundaries become obsolete. And Emran, I feel like you touch on this a lot in your book, Mind-Gut Connection and Gut-Immune Connection, that we are so interconnected and the health of us and our planet, everything hinges on us understanding that we need to acknowledge how interconnected we are. And this, if I just want to comment this, I think uh, Barry can give a much more profound uh, comment to this than I can. I'm uh, not sure about that, Aaron. <laughs> <clears throat> no, this, you know, the uh, the realization that, I mean, I've often read this when I was younger, but never really, you know, viscerally connected to that. But, you know, now in my age, I, I, I really feel it every day. So <clears throat> as we have all been all grown up in Western societies where the 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 ego is such an important part of uh, of the training that we want to have an accomplished ego and this ego is obviously 
separate from from the rest of the world and we want to conquer even in you know in the in the bible it says you want to sort of you know um conquer all the other creatures on 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 the planet um but but then you realize i mean that's one of the biggest delusions because it keeps you from seeing this interconnectedness there is no such thing as as a separate ego it's you know once once we i mean if we had a you know magic glasses that would allow us to see all the interconnections we would say this ego concept is a is a is a ridiculous construct because i'm connected not just to everything in my body every cell uh, my brain is is connected to every cell in my body and i'm connected to everybody around me both living and non-living um so this this indoctrination that we go through you know in 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 the western tradition of of from earliest childhood on that we are this individual individualism and we have to prove it to the world that we're different and more successful you know it seems to sort of be like the the, the biggest obstacle to see this interconnectedness so i would love to hear your 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 comment to that yeah yeah th- those are lovely comments uh, Imran. Um, very beautifully mentioned, said, um, the core of Buddhism is deconstructing the ego. And the reason we do that is to uh, broaden our love and compassion, to make it universal. Having an ego separates us from others. It becomes us and them. And the world is not like that because we all are deeply connected on so many levels. The notion of an ego is actually artificial because the notion of an ego is based on our body primarily. Of course, our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. But where does the body come from? It it doesn't really belong to us. Actually, the rightful owners of our body are our mother and father from the egg and sperm that united to then bring about this body. So we don't own this body. The rightful owners are our parents. And yet we cling to this ego so tightly as if it's the most cherished possession. Um, So the whole process of, of, of deconstructing the ego through understanding that the ego as it appears to us, as everything appears to us, appears as if it's objectively real. You know, it's the old, you know, if you if you didn't hear the tree fall in the forest, did the tree fall in the forest? Well, of course not. <laughs> if you say yes, that's objective reality, that there's a real forest, a real tree out there that's falling independent of us. But that's not the case, okay? Uh, so much of our reality is made up from our own experience, from our subjective side. And yet we take the ego and everything to be objectively, independently, solidly, uh, intrinsically real. And so deconstructing the ego uh, doesn't mean we don't exist at all. But the ego as we perceive it, the ego as we understand it, that one is uh, made up, it's fabricated, it's false, and gets us into all the trouble. It's the troublemaker. You know, that's the one that when we see things that, or people or things that, we feel close to, we want to embrace. When we see people or things that we feel frightened by, we want to push back and we have aversion, you know, or get angry. Um, 
or get jealous or we you know, have revenge or all those things, negative, uh, aggressive uh, emotions. And that's all based on a false notion of our ego. Mm. So when we begin to deconstruct our ego, slowly, slowly what happens is those reactions of aversion or attraction begin to lessen. And what increases is care about others, love for others, compassion for others. Um, so that interconnectedness gets back to what we were talking about a little earlier that, you know, we are, you know, we all want to be happy and we don't want to hurt. And that's something we all share deeply. And that's what reunites us as one human family. And nationhood separates us from that. It's okay, everybody that's in my country, yeah, I can relate to that maybe, although now we make other divisions based on which you know, political party you follow in America or other countries, you know, um, which is totally absurd, right? Um, but you know, it's within my country, you know, already my country, right? You know, we can you know, see that everybody wants to be happy and doesn't want to hurt. We're interconnected in my country. But what about the country next door? Or the country around, you know? So obviously uh, nationhood is an old concept as his holiness often says, you know, it may have worked bringing us out of, of, of uh, you know, what do you call fiefdoms or, you know, nation states kind of situation into a larger area where we can cooperate. But now because of economy, because of education, uh, because of the internet, you know, information uh, in terms of, you know, healthcare even often is international, uh, on and on. Uh, we have so much that connects us internationally that these national borders become archaic and they become obstacles. Yeah, when I hear you speak, I feel like I get this sense that there's this maybe ancient wisdom from, as you're saying, meditation, compassion, this interconnectedness of us, our microbiome to our body, things that we might not be able to see. And for example, meditation, you know, it was thought in Western medicine to be fringe science. And now we know the research is finally out. It's showing that it can change the structure of the brain. It can increase gray matter, increases resiliency to stress, just name it. And, you know, I imagine when you hear this very, you're like, yeah, we've known this for like 2,500 years. And that's the thing about Western medicine is that it, at times I worry can be a bit too skeptical, you know, unless you show me the research, I might dismiss it. And, you know, I absolutely support evidence-based medicine and it's fundamental to all the incredible advancements we've gotten in our medical breakthroughs. But my question, and this is to both of you is, do you feel like there's some things that research cannot prove and those things that could be integral to maintaining our health? You know, I, I always wonder how we navigate. Maybe we can't navigate with research. Maybe in those moments, we have to be more anthropological. Um, what do you guys think about that? You know, one area that research is having a lot of trouble uh, researching and primarily because they don't understand the concept uh, but is so important in all of our lives is our mind. And our mind encompasses our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our intuition, and even deeper levels of mind that manifest during the eight stages of dying and sometimes can manifest uh, through intention and through practice in our meditation 
and can also, for brief moments, can manifest when we are sneezing uh, or when we're yawning, also in sexual activity, um, but we don't recognize them. We can't use them beneficially. Um, so the mind is something that's not, you know, able to be looked at. We can look at, you know, in, in psychology kind of looks at behavior, sometimes behavior that is influenced by experience, you know, cognitive uh, psychology, but um, generally we don't have a clue or very, we don't have a very clear understanding of what is the mind uh, in Western culture. Eastern cultures have a much better understanding of that. Um, and that's an area that uh, can be very complementary when we bring Eastern traditions, health traditions, uh, healing traditions uh, into the mix of taking care of a sick patient um, that can't be really um, understood very well from the point of view of, of, of allopathic medicine. Well, the whole area of introspection, the whole area of uh, mindfulness, the whole area of being present, which, which leads to health, um, is something that isn't really understood very well in allopathic medicine. And I think this is very complementary and can be, uh, we, can, we can learn a lot from people, from doctors that are using these kind of approaches with meditation, uh, et cetera. If I, um, I mean, I totally agree with this. I mean, just making one one comment. So, <clears throat> in Western medicine, we yeah, this focus on evidence based or science based. Um, certainly, it's been very successful in understanding, you know, many basic mechanisms, um, particularly in 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 mouse models. Not so much. So we so we always take whatever we find in a mouse model of schizophrenia or depression. That that's relevant to to the human brain or human mind, which I think is a huge mistake, and and it shows you how few things that are being proven in the mouse experiment actually translate into clinically relevant uh, information. <clears throat> and I mean, this could change in the in the in the future. I, I think brain imaging today is still a very crude tool. You know, to look at um, activity. So first it was structure, then it was activity, and now it's connections. It's still evolving, and I, I think we're still a far way away from linking complex phenomena of the mind with something that we can measure and then, you know, in an experiment, um, manipulate and influence and um, train somebody and see what effect this has. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in. Um, I mean, we've worked with brain imaging for some 25 years now, and we still struggle to connect even simple things like pain with very distinct um, phenomena within the brain. You, you know, it's it's uh, um, it's much harder than people think. There's not a like we used to be so naive to think there's a brain center and there's a brain reach a pain region. Uh, that that's all not the case. It's a very complex. Um, you know, network the brain that we still struggling to understand with system science and uh, the same kind of limitation that we have. We have approached this with the, the typical Western reductionistic cause and effect um, glasses rather than seeing it as, as a complex organized um, system that produces outputs that we, you know, much more difficult to study and to demonstrate. So I would say right now there's a lot of phenomena that 
we don't have the science and I sort of agree with, with, with Sarah. I don't think right now we really don't need it, you know, unless you wanna, we wanna manipulate it or con convince somebody because the empiric evidence from, you know, people that pursue uh, meditative contemplative practice um, is, is so strong that, you know, that you just have to make this, this leap of faith. Okay, so I don't see it on the brain scan, but I know um, it is beneficial. That's sort of my view on that. You know, yes, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and again, nicely put, Emran. Um, Evidence-based medicine uh, sometimes has bias in it that doesn't, uh, 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 that we don't see very well. One area is, you know, studies that come up with uh, sort of, you know, uh, no findings or negative results often don't get published. There's a movement now to try to get those published because that's very important information, but generally those have not been published. And so that's one form of bias. Another form of bias is to do what's considered the gold standard, the double blind, randomized double, double blind, you know, kind of research um, takes a lot of money. And who's got a lot of money to do this? It's the drug companies primarily. And so you see this, you know, often because they want to, you know, the, the motivation is, 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 is profit. Mm -hmm. and they want to sell more of their particular uh, drug. Uh, and so they'll do the studies and they'll show non-inferiority. Well, you know, give me a break. You know, that doesn't really tell us that much. Um, and getting back to the question that Sarah asked initially to both of us um, in terms of evidence-based, so-called evidence-based, maybe I have to put it that way. I mean, please don't misunderstand. I think evidence-based medicine is, is really uh, the proper way to go, but it isn't foolproof. And there are biases, you know, still there. That's what I'm saying. But if you look at anecdotal stuff and if you collect it, as you say, Sarah, over 2,500 years, you know, that has weight. You know, that has weight. And even though it's not a randomized, you know, controlled trial, um, double blind randomized controlled trial, it still has a lot of weight. And I think that if we just dismiss it out of hand, um, we um, lose a lot and who actually the losers are actually our patients. Mainstream medicine has put up many obstacles to so-called complementary or integrative or alternative you know, medical systems. And I think we need to really look beyond those you know, um, boundaries that are artificially set and not get frightened that we're gonna lose turf, but work together with you know, legitimate you know, healthcare practitioners, doctors from other traditions. And I think, you know, we all benefit. Physicians benefit, nurses benefit, and of course the patients benefit. Yeah, remind me of that study, you talk about it in your book, um, about the effect of love and compassion on women with breast cancer. And I always think, you know, it would be so difficult to prove exactly what's happening that's making, you know, the breast cancer improve. Maybe you can touch a little bit up on on that study, but it really reminds me of what you're talking about. Who yeah, it was a study that was done some decades ago. Um, it was looking at breast cancer, women with breast cancer, and two groups. One group, you know, both groups get the standard of care. You know, the, when, when indicated the surgery and the type of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and now we probably have to put in you know, uh, biologics. Uh, you know, you know. And one group in it additionally got TLC, got 10 to 11 care. 
And I think a psychologist or a, someone like a psychologist, social worker psychologist, was sent out to the home regularly and just flooded them with love and care and kindness. And the results showed that the group that received the standard care plus TLC actually did better. You know, they had better numbers in terms of longevity and they had decreased in terms of mortality, in terms of morbidity. Um, and, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me and people that understand the power of love in terms of healing. The mechanisms, of course, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is way beyond me. Um, but, you know, we see this. So when I was between my first and second year medical student uh, at USC, University of Southern California. Oh, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> uh, you know, cross town rivals, right? Um, I had a mentor, his name was uh, Lawrence Stevens. He was an orthopedic surgeon and he was an amazing person. And he believed that emotions can have a very major part in, in disease and sometimes even causation. And he took a, um, he, he then, so I, I did an elective between my first and second year with Lawrence Stevens. And he had me go out to uh, interview women with uh, SLE, systemic lupus, erythematosus, lupus, the full, full form of lupus. Um, and, you know, it's, I think about 90% people with, you know, full form of lupus are, are women. So all the people I ended up going out to interview, about a dozen people uh, were women. Of course, they were all, they all consented to have me come out and we videotaped the interview. And then we looked at Lawrence Stevens and I would look at the interviews. And one thing that really was incredible was about a year or so before their diagnosis of lupus, each one of these women had some incredibly traumatic, emotionally traumatic event in their life. One or two of them lost a son or a daughter, you know, uh, to an accident. Uh, um, and others had extremely traumatic incidents. A year later, they uh, developed symptoms, go see the doctor, and they come down with a diagnosis of uh, lupus. Um, there's a gentleman who I know more recently who has a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis it doesn't have all the same markers that you generally see with RA, but it, they think he has RA. And about uh, one to two years, two years, it was two years before his diagnosis, his mother died and he was very close with his mother. And then there were some other traumatic things that happened in his life about one to two years before his symptoms and then diagnosis of RA. So it really tells me that, of course, not always, but you know, emotional, particularly traumatic emotional experiences can have a profound effect on our, on our health and, and sometimes lack of health, uh, particularly in this area of you know, immune modulated uh, diseases like RA and lupus. This is obviously has to do with the immune system and this, this field of, you know, called psychoneuroimmunology, how, how, how brain and um, emotional states have a profound effect on, on the immune system. I was sort of trying to link this with uh, studies that have come out of UCLA from um, a colleague and friend of mine, um, Steve Cole, who is 
who studied um, the effect of um, of um, of happiness on on um, gene expression of immune cells, and has sort of compared two groups. One, which was uh, this this eudaimonic um, kind of happiness, and the other one, the um, the hedonic happiness that's so prevalent in, in you know in the West. So. Okay, real quick. What's the difference between eudaimonic and hedonic happiness? Happiness itself can be difficult to define. Hedonic happiness, in short, is about enjoyment and satisfaction, with the ultimate goal in life being to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. The philosophy dates back to the 4th century BC from Greek philosopher Aristippus. Eudaimonic happiness is slightly more complex, and its beginnings also date back to the 4th century, coming from Aristotle's work. This type of happiness is achieved through self-actualization, a process where an individual reaches his or her full potential. There's a focus on clarifying one's true self and deep values, staying connected to them, understanding the bigger picture, and contributing to it all while striving for higher quality and higher standards in one's behavior. Supporters of eudaimonia include Plato, Marcus Aurelius, and Kant. Maslow's hierarchy of needs also points to the highest goal of life being linked to self-actualization. Most people that talk about happiness think about material things. And, um, and I mean, this is sort of amazing that how strong an effect uh, how, how strong a difference there was between these two groups, one the pursuing the the, the, the the typical happiness of the West and those that, you know, the eudaimonic um, um, uh, attitude and, uh, and, and, and philosophy. So clearly the immune system has, uh, the, the brain and the mind states have this major influence on, on our genes and the genes that regulate the immune, the, uh, the immune system. So I think we're beginning to really understand, um, um, you know, this, this, this connectedness between mind states, uh, trauma, gene expression, and how this affects the immune system and then ultimately how the immune cells. And so I, 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 I mean, this is an example, I think, where we are beginning to really um, can prove some of these concepts that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that have existed and that in, in, in Buddhism have been, um, you know, taught. Um, but we're just at the, at the beginning of it. I mean, some of these results are almost too hard to believe. You know, like when I first read this paper and I heard him speak about this, it's about this is, is, is hard to imagine, but um, that, that the way we, we feel happy or we feel negative directly gets all the way down into what our immune cells do. Uh, and if it's on a chronic level, obviously you increase or decrease your risk for some of for cancers or autoimmune diseases. Yes, I, I think, you know, what you say is very true. Um, there's been some work with uh, interleukin-6 and meditation. And uh, interleukin-6 is a complex system in the immune system, but generally is correlated with inflammation. And now we're knowing that many chronic diseases are correlated with inflammation, chronic inflammation. And so inflammation is not good for us. And there have been some studies, a number of studies, um, showing that people that do more meditation have lower levels of interleukin-6, suggesting lower levels of chronic inflammation. 
There's also some work that's been done in epigenetics. Um, and uh, there's a woman by the name of Kaliman. Um, I'm just blocking on her first name. She's actually a dear friend of mine. She's from Barcelona, University of Barcelona. And I hooked her up with uh, the work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Richard Davidson, where I've been involved with uh, some of the research there as a, as a, as a subject. Um, and she has been showing uh, work with epigenetic changes uh, that are positive, uh, you know, resulting in positive uh, protein expression um, in terms of positive meaning healthy protein expression related to meditation and positive mental states. Before we move on, let's break down what exactly epigenetics is. The study of epigenetics has changed the old idea that genes are set in stone. We used to think that the way we passed on traits was strictly through our genes found on our DNA. Now we know that epigenetic changes can alter the structure of DNA, either through adding or modifying the DNA molecule, as this in turn will affect what genes get expressed. What you eat, where you live, who you interact with, and when you sleep, how you exercise, can all cause epigenetic changes. So in other words, epigenetic changes are reversible and do not alter your DNA, but they can change how your body reads DNA. An example explaining this is seen in mice with a gene called agouti. In normal brown mice, there is an epigenetic modification on this agouti gene. Mice that don't have this epigenetic modification will have a yellow coat and be obese, despite being genetically identical. Another example is when the diet of a pregnant mother is changed, that can modify the ratio of brown to yellow mice pups. There's more and more of this work coming out. There's a book that was published last year, which is called Compassionomics, written by two docs. One's, you know, one of them is an ER doc and the other is a, has done more administrative work. And they were kind of... Uh, they didn't really believe this whole area of you know, healing uh, through positive mental states and meditation, but they were enough, you know, uh, they had enough, you know, kind of positive sort of doubt, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, so that they went and they did research and they took a couple of years, I think it was over a two year period, and they did the literature search and they took, pulled all the articles that were having to do with the, uh, you know, mindfulness-based interventions, MBIs, and, and compassion and positive mental states, uh, and, 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 and looked at all these, and they compiled it into a book. And it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, it's about 250 to 300 pages. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff. You get, can get a little bogged down, but you don't need to go in. And they don't give all the details of the research, but they give all the references. So you can go to the articles if you want. But they became you know, uh, believers after this, that there is a lot of really good research um, that, you know, even though the quality of some of the individual studies are not the top quality, if you add up all of these, put them together, do the meta-analysis, that it's very powerful to suggest that these MBIs and compassion and these sorts of interventions are, are very, uh, uh, can be very helpful to uh, reduce disease increased health. And in that context, you know, it's something that we talked about earlier. Um, I'd like to mention it here. Generally, allopathic medicine, you know, when we find someone sick, 
we think our job is to try to help them get rid of the sickness and that's it, we finish. Uh, but actually that's only where we begin because we really wanna help the patient, the person get to a state of well-being, a state of flourishing, a state of, uh, you know, where they, where they really feel happy, that not excited happiness, but inner peace kind of happiness that you alluded to, Emran. Um, and, you know, that's really part of our job. Now, if, if I'm a, you know, a gut doctor, I'm a GI, doc, a GI doctor, and I say, well, that's not my purview. Okay, no problem. You know, I, I don't mean you, because you don't believe this, Emran, you believe in the whole, you know, the, the flourishing state. But, um, you know, then another doctor who is trained in that, and we have to bring that kind of training into the medical school uh, curriculum. Now, this is so important um, to bring compassion as part of our training. Not only does it help prevent and ameliorate once burnout has been, uh, someone becomes burnout, doctors become burnout, but it also helps us find more meaning in what we do. So at the end of the day, we go home and we feel you know, meaningful. That was a meaningful day that, you know, my practice of medicine. Um, and then not to, you know, least of which to say the benefit to the patients, if we're, you know, practicing this doctor-patient relationship, you know, using uh, compassion as kind of our model. And it can be done in a modicum, you know, we don't need a lot of extra time. This has been shown over and over again. There's a new medical school that's been created in Arkansas. And I believe it's Alice Walton is financing this. And they're all about compassion, to bring compassion training into the training of doctors. This is so, so important. I mean, it can help to make this, this, this comment. You told this wonderful story, how you got into medicine, um, you know, and, and then even more surprising that once you had gone through this difficult, you know, phase of, of training, did you decide to become a monk and not sort of reap the financial benefits? That's very different, obviously, from what we see today, that even from the parent standpoint, you know, they and hear many of these stories in Asia that there's a sort of a, a, a record book that parents keep in, in Hong Kong of their children, what they accomplish in, in the first year of life and um, all with the goal to get them into medical school, but ideally in, in the U.S. Um, and then not just in any field of med medicine, but the ones, the areas that make the most money. So the procedure oriented, I see this in my own specialty, you know, 95% of the people that choose that specialty do it for, because it's, it's the most lucrative, you know, uh, direct path to wealth and um, financial stability. So do you think that this competition of these two um, forces, you know, on the one side, people go into medicine in this country, not, not necessarily in other parts of the world, mainly for the financial benefits and, 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 and security. Why would they want to spend their time learning about compassion? Because that's, they can't translate into money, you know? The irony is money doesn't bring happiness. And we can gain a lot in terms of comfort, health, you know, education for our kids, all that, you know, sometimes takes money and that's important. So I, I don't mean to knock that, but it doesn't bring that deeper level of, of, of well-being, of happiness and satisfaction. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but for about now, I think 32 or three years, I have not had a salary 
Uh, I haven't charged a patient anything, zero. Except for a few months, about 20 some years ago, when I needed to make a little money, I did a few, I came back to the States for a few, few months from India where I live in Dharamsala. And I did some locum tenens. Other than that, and they didn't pay me very well, by the way, but uh, other than that, I haven't charged patients anything. Um, now I'm not saying that everyone needs to do that, but it is important, I think, to you know donate some of your time uh, to see patients for free, to do a free clinic, you know, a half a day a week or something. I think those are because you gain a lot from that. Mm-hmm. You feel like you're doing something meaningful. That compassion heals not just you know the patient that you're treating in the free clinic, but also yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's so so important. Your meaning in life and your value as a person and as a physician is not just tied to um, the amount of money you make or in the academic setting, the amount of articles or the amount of you know awards that you've received, um, but rather that they're also tied to your teaching, uh, to your, your ability to uh, create a satisfactory environment and a nourishing, uh, flourishing environment for the patient. Mm-hmm. When you were speaking in the beginning, you were saying, you know, you feel so happy and blessed to be a doctor. And I think something I've had an issue with um, all throughout medical school and in residency and still now is not understanding the difference between empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about how important that difference is? Yeah, it's an incredible distinction that is not taught in medical school or residency. And um, I'm advocating that it, you know, that it be there because it can help protect us from not feeling good as being a doctor, not feeling happy being a doctor. It can prevent us from, you know, all the stress and the anxiety around medicine. It can, you know, the depression that comes in, the burnout, the self-harm and even suicide, broken relationships or dysfunctional relationships, substance abuse, all that. Um, it's not a panacea, but it can help us to, you know, try to navigate so that we don't get caught in those negative spiral down kind of scenarios. So empathy is feeling like the other person is feeling. Sometimes we say stepping in the other person's shoes. Now with empathy, we tend to be very close as the, you know, the description suggests in the other person's shoes. Um, and when we're too close, we're almost enmeshed to borrow from the addiction literature. And that's not so healthy to be enmeshed because we can be an enabler if we're too close and we're enmeshed. Um, So while empathy is wonderful, I don't mean to say it isn't, uh, our heart is open, we're caring, we really wanna help the patient, that's all beautiful stuff. But it can get us into trouble. If we're too close, inadvertently, we can begin to own the other person's pain inadvertently. Uh, And if that builds and builds and builds, that often leads to burnout. We sometimes say, I hear people say, compassion fatigue, that's a misnomer. It's actually empathy fatigue because we're taking on inadvertently the pain of the suffering patients that we're dealing with. Compassion is a little different. It's an open heart. It's the willingness, the the wish to help, but it's defined this way. Compassion is the wish 
and the action when we can to reduce or even eliminate suffering. So there's a cognitive element there that's not so emotional. When we get too emotional, we lose our clarity and therefore we lose all the different options that might be available to help the person to reduce or eliminate their suffering. Plus, it protects us. So it's almost as if we're taking a half step back emotionally when we practice compassion. We're not right in the other person's face. Um, there's much less of a tendency to take on the other person's pain. And the overall feeling of compassion is more of one of joy because we're helping. Of course, it's tinged you know, with sadness because we're touching the other person's pain, but we're not being overwhelmed by their sadness. With empathy, there's a tendency to be overwhelmed by their sadness and take on their pain. So making that distinction and you know, being aware of that, and when you're with the patient, if you feel you're being too close emotionally, if you feel that you're starting to feel their pain too much, um, then take a half a step back emotionally, see more, have more clarity of what's happening, make better decisions for the patient, help them even in a better way to reduce or even eliminate their suffering. At the same time, protecting ourselves, feeling well ourselves, feeling that we're doing something meaningful and joyous in terms of helping the other person. You have created a nonprofit called Altruism in Medicine, where your goal is to teach compassion in medical schools similar to anatomy and physiology. How do you teach compassion? Yeah, so now we, we've, with your previous question, we've kind of defined compassion, with the wish and the action when we can to reduce or eliminate suffering. How do we teach that? So there's an indirect and a direct approach. The direct approach um, is to, you know, this brief mantra that we talked about, you know, we may not call it a mantra in medical school, but, you know, this brief kind of uh, attitude, which we can remember, which is that we're all the same in wanting happiness and not wanting to have pain. Um, and every time we interact with a patient or a colleague, a staff or a family member or a friend or anyone to remember just, you know, she or he, just like me, just wants to be happy, doesn't want to hurt. And if we remember that, uh, that relationship will improve. So that's very important in terms of the doctor-patient relationship, in terms of the doctor-doctor, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, our close loved one relationships, et cetera. Um, we also talk about interconnectedness because compassion and interconnectedness are really two ways of talking about something very similar. When we recognize how closely we, inter we are interconnected, we are one family, one human family, that we wanna care for them just as we wanna care for those that we now conceive of as our kind of family, biological family, right? Which is very limited, it, you know, usually involves a handful or a few handfuls of people. But if we look at our, the whole, you know, the whole human family and see them as our family, see them as not different, similar on this deeper level, wanting to be happy and not hurt, then we just want to care for them naturally. Um, now, are we always going to do that? Of course not, you know, but the more we train in that and the more we do it, we also feel well ourselves. So it kind of, you know, has this self-fulfilling prophecy to it. Indirect, 
you know, we talk about areas we call generosity, uh, areas we call um, um, developing patience or tolerance. And that's a way to uh, transform anger. You know, so we talk about this whole area of emotional hygiene, which is transforming our negative emotions into their positive opposites. Anger into patience or tolerance, uh, jealousy into appreciation, pride or arrogance into humility. Humility, by the way, it takes a lot of courage and strength. Arrogance is weakness, often an expression of uh, insecurity. So emotional hygiene is another indirect way we teach compassion. We teach kindness. And now all these things I'm talking about are for the other person, but they're also for self-compassion. Because if we don't learn to take good care of ourselves, self-compassion, we're not going to do as good a job taking care of the other person. Or sometimes we'll take very good care of the other person, but we forget ourselves and we suffer, right? So we need to practice self-compassion as a base. And from that, then we work towards compassion for others. Kindness, being gentle to ourselves. At the end of the day, after we've done, say, you know, 100 things, I mean, we do a lot more, but let's say we did 100 things, right? So maybe uh, 95 of them went well. We felt good about them. Five of them, uh-uh, you know, terrible. I wouldn't want to do that again. What do we think about at the end of the day? Yeah, we think about the five, don't we? We forget about the 95. So we try to teach people, in this case, medical students, remember the other 95, and it's okay to pat yourself on the back. I did a good job. You know, you don't have to go all the way into arrogance, but you can feel good about what you did. You don't have to just address the negativity. That's a way of taking care of ourselves. And there are many other ways that we uh, talk about in terms of compassion. We also bring the wisdom in a little bit without going into too much detail about the pitfalls of ego and how we can begin to shed some of the really harsh, you know, kind of barbs that stick out from our ego and make us a happier person, make our relationship with a patient much more satisfactory and in that way bringing more compassion can you share with us some things you found interesting in your relationship with the Dalai Lama? Maybe something that was a bit surprising to you. Surprising. <laughs> he surprises me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he doesn't think linearly. Uh, he's a person that thinks out of the box. Um, on a number of occasions, uh, these Mind and Life uh, Institute dialogues between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and scientists, often quantum physicists, sometimes physicians or sometimes uh, psychologists, uh, cosmologists. Um, he will have these discussions. And then after it's finished, uh, we'll have usually a, a meal or something together and I'll participate with the scientists. And I've heard many scientists say, they are totally surprised or even shocked at His Holiness's comments about their research or about their field, mm -hmm. because he doesn't know much about their research. He doesn't know much about their field, mm -hmm. but hearing them, their presentations, he's able to think like a master chess player, seven moves ahead. Mm -hmm. And I've heard this comment a number of times from top level international scientists that he has mentioned something about a direction for their research. 
or something about their field that hasn't been discovered that they had no idea of before. And they said, yes, this is exactly the direction we need to go. Um, so, I mean, he's a genius. He also sees things that other people don't see. Um, he has that type of, you might call it a deep intuition that's almost if not always correct. Um, it's accessing the very subtle minds. Um, he's, he's, he's read my mind on more than one occasion and I've checked it and it's true. Um, so these things are very surprising. That like? I mean, How was he reading your mind? What does that mean? Tell me. Well, okay, I'll give you one example. We were in, uh, we were in uh, Varanasi in Sarnoff, which is near Varanasi. And it's where the Buddha gave the first teachings after he became enlightened, okay? Sarnoff, near Varanasi, Northeast uh, India. So he's giving a teaching. I think it was a Kala Chakra uh, initiation. And just before the initiation, he's teaching general Buddhism. And so I'm sitting, there's a kind of a structure that they make just for him and he's on a big high throne. And then everybody's sitting out there. I think there are about 50 or 70,000 people out there. And I was sitting inside this little structure off to his right, directly off to his right. So he wouldn't be able to see me. And I'm probably about three or four meters. Maybe what is that about you know, 10 or 15 feet away from him. And I'm sitting on a cushion. He's way up on the throne. So something goes through my mind. And then I think, Oh, wow, he's read my mind. That thought just came in my mind. <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, it just came naturally, spontaneously. And then I look over at him. He's looking at me. He's turning 90 degrees to look at me with this big grin on his face. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, holy shit, he really is reading my mind. He does that a second time. He looks 90 degrees over me. He's teaching 70,000 people, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, doing all these hand mudras and all this stuff. And, you know, I was convinced that he was reading my mind. And that's happened on more than one occasion. His sense of humor sometimes <laughs> throws me off, you know, it surprises <laughs> me. Uh, you know, he can find something funny and yeah. say a few things about it. And then everybody in the room laughs. And these are not polite, social, political laughter. This is, uh, you know, from your gut, from, you know, from deep inside. Uh, and, and that sometimes is surprising. Um, his compassion, I wouldn't say it's surprising, but sometimes it's overwhelming. He'll pick somebody out in an audience or, you know, in a group when he's walking by um, that he knows is suffering. We may not recognize that. And he'll relate to that person in a way that seems very healing. He'll sometimes hug them, hold their hand for a while, you know, and he's walking towards a huge gathering of thousands of people to, you know, give a, you know, give a teaching. Um, and that sometimes can be a, a little bit surprising. Um, or certainly I didn't recognize that. Um, yeah, things like that. Um, you know, just being around him, um, it's almost like there's this, it's almost like Tinkerbell, you know, you know, sent some of her magic dust, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you feel this kind of vibrancy, um, joy, um, 
everything is perfect, all right. Um, when you're, you don't feel, I don't feel it all the time I'm around him. Many times I'm around him, I feel that. And that's uh, something incredibly precious, incredibly precious. I can um, feel it. I can feel as you're explaining it. <laughs> Just the joy on your face as you say it. That's no, I mean, I wouldn't give the world for that. Yeah. His experiences. Uh, yeah. And, and I know that he deeply cares about me. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, he keep deeply cares about everyone. It's not just me. Mm -hmm. And many people have this same feeling that he deeply cares about me. Mm -hmm. um, but I know he does. He's, he's done things over the decades that have really helped me in my life, uh, on my journey. Mm -hmm. deeply and uh um i am you know so 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 grateful mm -hmm. and appreciative for this opportunity to have with him is there, is there one thing that you sometimes think oh i'd love to be able to you know share this one statement what, what would that be find that joy and that happiness that connection with others that is a positive connection, that's not, you know, hierarchical, that's not belittling, that's not abusing, that's not bullying, but is equal and is just. Um, to find uh, that kind of relationship with as many people as you can and as many times as you can, it will enrich your life along with enriching the other person's life. of The Hidden Body. If you've enjoyed the message of this podcast, please tell two other people to listen. This is the best way to help spread the word. Also, subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review so that others who are looking for this kind of information can find it. This is a space for educational discussion and should not be taken as medical advice. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. Please consult with the appropriate medical professional for any medical questions regarding your health.